Thank you. That was very well timed. Our next speaker is Madeline Starr, who um, is the strategic, I can never remember your strategic partnerships manager with Carers UK. She's been with Carers UK since 2000 and has been really the lead on the um, issues around um, carers and the employment issues. Um, and I'll leave it at that, I think, Madeline. Thank you. Vos very kindly didn't say I've been with Carers UK since before the dawn of time, but sometimes it does feel like that. Okay, and I'm going to talk today about uh, specifically about uh, rights and employment uh, and uh, non-discrimination, non anti-discrimination measures in the workplace. Just to remind ourselves of the scale of the issue, and I think it's always important to bring us back to this, scale of the issue plus uh, the gender divide. Six million carers, 58% of whom are women, 42% of whom are men. The fact that there are so many men in the workplace made a significant difference to getting caring and employment issues on the policy agenda, and we must never forget that. Um, the majority of carers are of working age, and we know that there was a, an, an earlier perception of carers as older people, caring for older people, but that simply isn't so. So working age carers in the majority and three million of them are currently uh, in paid work, juggling that work with care. Two million full-time, one million part-time, 400,000, so nearly half a million combining work with 20 hours of care a week or more, and uh, a staggering quarter of a million combining their paid work with 50 hours of care. Uh, a week or more, which by anyone's standards is two jobs. Interestingly, there is a gender divide, so we're looking at equal numbers, but ma male carers are much more likely uh, to work full-time uh, than women and to work more likely to work in general. Women carers are much more likely to work part-time, and there's something there about what they experience in terms uh, of inequalities around part-time working uh, and low-paid uh, low-skilled jobs, and Vera Baird is doing a lot of work on this at the moment as part of the employment strategy she referred to. And, of course, we've got the caring churn. So 2.3 million people in the UK moving in and out of caring each year, which means that you constantly have to reevaluate the measures that support carers and promote them in the workplace, both to employers and to carers themselves. A completely unacceptable one in five people gives up work to care. Um, which in terms of what we're facing uh, as a demographic challenge with a shrinking workforce cannot be acceptable in a modern economy. We're in tight times now, but as John says, they're not actually as tight as everyone would have us believe, and it's a blip. So it will move on. We know that we're looking at a very challenging future in terms of skills uh, and, uh, and the workforce, and I'll come back to that very briefly later. <laughs> There's clear evidence that carers are working below their potential in having to reduce working hours, many not being able to access professional development and training, some of which is about their ability in terms of support services, some of which is about discrimination, and many facing restricted opportunities for promotion and advancement similarly. We do have employment rights for carers, we do have hard rights. The Employment Rights Act 1996 was amended twice to deliver uh, rights for carers in the workplace. The first was the right to reasonable time off to care for a dependent, and this was the first piece of legislation that actually explicitly included carers. Uh, and this gives, gives carers 
The right to reasonable time off, this is not specified. It's expected to be the time off you might need to manage a crisis in care if a care arrangement breaks down. It, can, it is, is unpaid, can be paid by forward-looking employers, doesn't have to be paid. What's important about it in terms of what we're talking about today is that an employer cannot discriminate against an employee who asks for uh, emergency time off. And it also delivered the right to parental leave of up to 18 weeks, four weeks in any year, for parents of disabled children up to the age of 18. And then the Flexible Working Regulations of 2002 amended the Employment Rights Act to deliver the right to request flexible working for carers of disabled children up to the age of 18. So that was explicitly about parents, but it did include parents of disabled children, so carers for the first time were able to request flexible working. Remember, not to work flexibly, but to request, but the request does have to be taken seriously. And then the Work and Families Act, and Luke's right, this was a significant gain for carers. This gave carers the right to request flexible working and, uh, and as such you know, embedded them in the process but also looked at what was in effect a reasonable adjustment and this was I think the first time that we, we saw any kind of concept of a reasonable adjustment for carers rather than uh, disabled people in the workplace. The definition, of course, is absolutely fearsome, typical, whatever it was then, I can't remember if it was DTI, DFE, BIS, whatever it called itself at that time, kind of battened down the definition as tightly as possible. Here it is, but what we do know is that there is a commitment, or was a commitment, in the National Carers Strategy to review this definition, to extend it, to cover those carers who were missed in this definition, about uh, 200 if not 400,000. Emily's looking at me. I won't, I won't give a number, I'll get into really serious trouble. But uh, 80,000. And then we have the Sharon Coleman case. And I don't think that we can emphasise enough the importance of uh, the case that Sharon took to uh, the European Court. Well, took to Employment Tribunal originally and thence to the European Court. And I think it's fair to say she was extraordinarily courageous uh, and tenacious in hanging on in there in the face of really almost insuperable odds. And, of course, what happened out of that is that the European Court itself actually said that the legislation as currently written, so the directive as currently written, and it does apply across all European countries, protects people who, although not themselves disabled, suffer direct discrimination and or harassment because they are associated with a disabled person. So you know, here was an enormous opportunity, and one which, of course, we've seen fully uh, followed up in the Equalities Bill. And, of course then the expectation was that this would read across to other equality strands, and that included age. And so we also were looking at the, the first step towards uh, anti-discrimination measures for people caring for older people. 
And in terms of Sharon's own case, we know that uh, a ruling was given by the Employment Tribunal, which was then challenged by her employer, which, given they're a law firm, was fairly daft, but anyway, was challenged by her employer, Attridge Law. But in fact, the Employment Appeal Tribunal in October 2009 ruled in her favour and said that the DDA must be read as covering workers who are associated with disabled people. Such workers, including carers, are therefore protected under law. And then, of course, by extension, <laughs> workers who are associated with older people are also protected. So we have this extraordinary, um, extraordinary you know, case leading now to what are the hardest rights we've seen yet. But what does discrimination look like? Because we are talking here about anti-discrimination. Looks like we're not talking about Equalities. Actually, we're talking about anti-discrimination. And discrimination at work can take many forms. We have the overt discrimination, which so many carers report that they have suffered because of their caring role. Dismissal, demotion, the refusal of promotion, the refusal of a particular type of job. So a very obvious form of discrimination directly related to people's caring responsibilities and, of course, suffered by by women in the workplace uh, with childcare responsibilities for many, many years. And then that covert discrimination because of a caring role, which of course is much more insidious, and that's very much around attitudes, you know, the inference that employees are less committed or less reliable because they have external responsibilities. You know, the, the assumption that they will be less able to contribute to their teams, the assumption that teams will resist them being given any kinds of flexibilities um, because somehow it undermines the functioning of a team. All of this, of course, resulting in fear of disclosing caring responsibilities in the workplace and, of course, uh, a very real fear in terms of asking for support. So how can employers avoid this, bearing in mind that they are, we hope, going to have to avoid it, avoid it well, they are going to have to avoid it. This, of course, relates to all employers. So we are looking at the public, private and voluntary sectors. We, of course, all need to look to ourselves we are whatever, service providers, campaigners, lobbyists, we are all also employers. So this, chaps, is about us. We should care-proof policies. We should ensure that what we have in place that covers a whole range of measures that are enshrined in legislation now also include carers. Employers should develop clear procedures to support carers so that they are transparent uh, in the ways in which they support carers. They should include them in written policies and handbooks to prevent this overt discrimination so that they don't have an opportunity, in fact, to discriminate against carers because of their external responsibilities. But far more than that, and I think probably far more important, is the change in a workplace culture that really promotes an understanding of carers and caring and makes it acceptable in the workplace. This is really the only way to tackle prejudice and to prevent this type of covert discrimination. The days are long gone when uh, we were expected to keep entirely separate our working and family lives. You know, the world has changed and the world of work has changed, and increasingly the lines are blurred between these two things. And as we ask people to deliver more into the economy, particularly in order to meet our public finance crisis, to work longer, 
work smarter at exactly the time we are most likely to have caring responsibilities, given that the peak age for caring is 45 to 64. If we really are going to ask people to manage increasingly complex lives in this way, we have to make support for caring in the workplace explicit and as normal as support for parenting now is. In order to change the workplace culture, we have to promote this issue, and we have to promote it again and again. We've got to promote the issue, the support on offer, regularly and in different ways, because caring actually doesn't mean anything to anyone until it happens to them. You know, we, we tend not to think with, uh, with expectation, we don't anticipate with pleasure the, uh, the onset of dementia for our mum or you know, the birth of our disabled child. So actually people tend not to think about caring until it comes their way. And of course it can hit at any time and it hits people at all different kinds of levels in organisations. So promoting the issue and re-promoting the issue is really critical. And then cascading that stuff down through the organisation. However you know, small the organisation, it's about making it everyone's business so that everybody within an organisation, whether they're in it or not, understands the nature of caring, the impact it can have, and of course the benefits of supporting those with uh, caring responsibilities. Training key staff is particularly pertinent if you are to ensure that support is offered consistently. We know from research, we know from anecdotal evidence that one of the greatest barriers to really implementing this type of workplace support is ill-informed or disempowered line management. So it's not only about informing, it's also about empowering people to be flexible, to create flexible opportunities within organisations and to make that okay. You know, as important within the Metropolitan Police you know, as the, the policy in place to support your Bobby on the beat with caring responsibilities is the empowerment of his sergeant to make a decision about his ability to work a different kind of shift from the other you know, from his team, and to make that okay. And we've heard that time and time again. So that kind of training in all different kinds of settings is absolutely critical. And, you know, in a room full of public sector employers, that, that's a key point. Obviously identifying and emulating best practice and monitoring take-up of support, measuring the benefits of this kind of support, because that helps with heart and minds. Because there's a business case, and I'm not going to, to go through it, because I think we all know the business case, promoted quite widely. Actually, enabling people to do this stuff is good for organisations. It delivers committed, loyal, dedicated, productive employees who aren't worried sick about what's happening at home while they're uh, in the workplace, or indeed what's happening 75 miles away with their mum, they're managing the care package for at a distance, and that's also quite critical in this respect. The demographic case is compelling, is as compelling as the business case, as I said earlier. You know, we're in a blip at the moment. Actually, in reality, in the next 25 years, we will need an additional 2 million workers in this country at exactly the same time that we need an additional 3 million carers to meet the demographic challenges of our ageing population and people living longer with disability. We will have a shrinking younger workforce. And as an economy and a society, we will not be able to afford for people not to work or indeed for people not to care. Employers for Carers is... is 
forum, membership forum from employers which can, can actually help with best practice in this uh, respect, and I would urge you to go to the website. But before I finish, there are two things I really want to say that came out of this morning and came out of me being harangued over coffee by Luke uh, before I started. And I have this slide in my presentation, and I took it out yesterday because I thought, no, we don't want to talk about services here today, but actually we do. This is the real equalities debate. We, you know, we can talk about rights in the workplace and we can talk about anti-discrimination measures, but in terms of actually giving carers equal opportunities, the opportunity to work and have a life outside caring, what makes the biggest difference to them is decent services to the people they care for. So the real debate is the debate on care and support. Sadly, Luke referred to... Uh, to our attempts to get into the Carers' Equal Opportunities Bill, discrimination by association, and we weren't successful then. There was also a missed opportunity in the review of a national carer strategy. We had on the table as a recommendation that there should be a duty on local authorities to ensure a sufficiency of care and support services to enable carers to work as they do with childcare, to make it very explicitly about people's ability to work. <coughs> In terms of you know, real infrastructures of support, we need care and support services that support employers to employ their employees. Care and support services are as much a part of the infrastructure employers have a right to expect as transport and utilities. Our current system isn't responsive to the needs of carers who want lives outside caring, as Dame Denise referred to, including working lives. I'm not saying that the services that you provide as local authorities aren't excellent, but you are increasingly providing better services to fewer and fewer people. So what we are looking at is indeed what Luke very naughtily referred to this morning because he said he wasn't going to. We need a whole systems change that delivers a proper infrastructure of support that enables carers to have a life outside caring, critically including working lives. Thank you.